Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. For working comedians, mean-spirited hecklers are part of the job. But what happens when someone gets angry enough to throw a beer? It's okay to not react immediately. That's what like sort of allowed me to, to take a moment and think like, what's the move here? And the move was to drink it. And West Virginia Poet Laureate Mark Harshman had his own experience with an intimidating gig. My uh, one and only time giving a poetry reading in an NCAA football stadium, surrounded by rock and roll and soul band. It's a place where a poet steps on the stage with uh, some serious trepidation. We also hear advice for people caring for aging relatives. The caregiver often, they experience grief. You know, they're going to mourn, I believe, at the beginning of what they expected their parents or you know, loved one's life, end of life to be like. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Catching a break in comedy can take years, decades, sometimes never. Usually, stand-up comedians slowly work their way up from open mics and local bars to the grind of touring on the club circuit. But getting a spot on a late-night talk show? That could be a career launcher, leading to a better spot on club shows, national tours, and every once in a while, real stardom. Kentucky comedian Ariel Elias recently appeared on Jimmy Kimmel Live, but not in the way she expected. She went viral after a video emerged of a heckler in New Jersey chucking a beer at her. It missed Elias's head by inches. And what happened next ensured her place in stand-up history. Elias picked up the can and chugged the rest of the beer. WFBL's Stephanie Wolf recently spoke with her. What comedic skills do you feel like you were able to draw on to respond to an audience member throwing a beer can at you while you were live on stage? I mean, honestly, like my initial reaction was like, that's insane. I can't believe that happened. But also like, how do I get the crowd back to paying attention to me? Because everybody's eyes, everybody was turned around looking at the door as these people were leaving. Before this happened, one of my worst fears on stage was losing control of the crowd. Now I have no fear on stage. Um, (laughs) But I think the biggest skill that like came into play was just being able to control my adrenaline um, and recognizing like breathe and take a beat. It's okay to not react immediately. And I think like that's what like sort of allowed me to to take a moment and think like, what's the move here? And the move was to drink it. Your bio says you made people laugh at your bat mitzvah. And the rest was history. Take me back to that moment. The one thing I remember is, so at every, uh, in our congregation at every bat mitzvah or bar mitzvah, there would be a moment where they presented you with like Jewish books as a gift. Uh, And I remember saying when I was presented with them going, does this mean I have to write more thank you notes? And that, like, got a laugh. And I was just like, oh, that's a cool feeling. That's kind of nice. Your identity as a Jewish person and Southern person are key influences to your comedy. And you lean a bit into stereotypes about both of those aspects of your identity. And a group of my friends came up to me. A few of my, my one friend (laughs) came up to me. She was really upset about it, too. She came up and she said, "Um, Earl... Earl, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but we learned in Sunday school 
that because you're a Jewish, <laughs> it means you're going to hell. And I was like, oh, wow. You think about me on the weekend? As a Jew myself who grew up in the South, that really resonated with my own experiences. But for you, where's the line? You know, I like have a couple of jokes that I'm sort of like ready to be done with because I think they kind of like make fun of Kentucky in a way I don't love, to be honest. Um, I never want to like punch down on anybody. But that said, like those were my real experiences. And like I really did have friends who like very lovingly were like, you're going to hell. I don't want you to um, because I love you. And like the solution to that is like convert. So I think as long as it's coming from a place of my experience, then that's where the line is. That's the whole point of comedy, right, is to take the edge off of life a little bit. Anti-Semitism is on the rise. What role do you think comedy and humor can play in countering that or fighting back against hate? It's hard because it's like we're kind of asking Jews to explain to people why they shouldn't hate us, right, when we put the onus on us for those kinds of things. But for me, my own personal experience growing up Jewish in Kentucky has always been sort of explaining who I am and who we are. So I think I have like a unique tool set to do that. That was comedian Ariel Elias speaking with Stephanie Wolf. We'll link to the viral video and Elias's upcoming tour dates on our website, wvpublic.org. Miss West Virginia Elizabeth Lynch finished as third runner-up in the Miss America competition. Lynch used the moment to promote Appalachian agriculture. WVPB's Shepard Snyder spoke to Lynch about her advocacy. You said you were in a master's program recently at WVU, mm -hmm. uh, entering a PhD program. I was wondering how that kind of affects what you kind of advocate for as far as Appalachian agriculture. Right. So my advoca advocacy kind of started when I was five. So it goes back way farther than my education. Um, I started riding horses when I was five years old. And then through 4-H and FFA, I started raising pigs. And I really just fell in love with the idea of being a part of the future of agriculture and the belief in the future of agriculture. But my family doesn't actually own a farm. I'm a first-generation agriculturist, so I was like, how in the world do I contribute to the future of agriculture and I don't live on a farm? But then I realized through FFA that it's so much more than just cows, sows, and plows. There's so many different opportunities if you want to be a part of agriculture. So I was like, okay, I'm really good at science. I'm really good at research. And I took that and I turned it into my agricultural education. So I got my bachelor's degree at Delaware State University in um, poultry, animal and poultry science. And I did research with sheep and goats while I was there. And then I moved to Morgantown for my master's degree, and I did work with poultry. And then now I'll start my PhD again in an agricultural field, working with food animals and parasites. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about kind of the day-to-days and the responsibilities of being Miss West Virginia? Not just, I guess, preparing for the events themselves, right. but just your daily responsibilities right. and all the work and advocacy work that kind of comes with that title. So for me, I get to talk about the Miss America organization and the Miss West Virginia organization in my day-to-day -day job. I get to advocate for agriculture. And, you know, a lot of people are like, well, you have a crown and a sash, so what do you really do? Do you kiss babies' foreheads and ride in parades and call it a day? And that's not it. So my job really entails a lot of public speaking. I do a ton of keynote speeches of 
actually um, been involved in the West Virginia Farm Bureau, and I've spoken at different county level Farm Bureau banquets as well as the state convention, and I was actually recently asked to go speak at the North Carolina Farm Bureau meeting as well. Um, so I'm uh, going to head out there in February and be their keynote speaker. So it's, again, a lot of public speaking work. A lot of time for me working on my social impact initiative and doing my Farmer Friday interviews, visiting farms, visiting farmers markets, uh, lots of social media, um, and then of course just trying to make sure that I can recruit young women for this organization because it's helped me so much, so why can't it help somebody else? Uh, this is really a job. Um, people don't look at it like that, but as soon as you get put in this position, you'll understand that it's a, a daily job and something that you have to work at all the time. And that's not to mention like all of the practice before Miss America as well. Yeah, and you seem very busy both inside and outside of your Miss America, Miss West Virginia duties. Um, you you know you're mentioning your Farmer Friday broadcast series. I saw that you kind of help research uh, feed manufacturing with poultry activists at WVU, or you had in the past. Can you tell me a little bit about some of those extra programs or initiatives that you? You've helped get off the ground? Oh my goodness. I So I've been involved in the Miss West Virginia organization for five years now, and I can't even begin to tell you how many things I've, I've been able to do, how many doors that this has opened for me. Um, so, and that's, you know, on top of the organization, on top of my time at WVU and DSU. Um, so it's, you know, helping out with extension work and through the university and teaching different agricultural courses. And it's uh, working directly with our farmers markets to get their names out there. It's working with our kids and starting the Miss West Virginia Grown Challenge, where they get to grow their own plants and figure out how to get their hands dirty too. So there's so many different things that I feel like I've done. It's kind of hard to put it all in a list. It seems like there's a lot. And like I've said, that this organization has really opened up so many doors for me. You're an advocate for Appalachian agriculture specifically. How is that different <laughs> than, I guess, agriculture in the Midwest or the heartland or any other you know, region of the country. Are there any special issues or challenges that come from farming in our neck of the woods? Well, that's a really good question. So I actually advocate for both Appalachian and American agriculture. So if you notice on the Miss America stage, I kind of tried to make sure that I could scale it to the national level as opposed to just keeping it regional. So looking at Appalachian agriculture specifically, we're looking at a very mountainous region and that can be a little difficult. So you've got more specialty crops in these areas as opposed to things like big ranges like you see in the Midwest. So you You've got more cattle production, more corn production, where um, there's a lot flatter land where in the Appalachian region, again, very mountainous things. So in West Virginia specifically, we've got um, a really strong hold on hay and fruit production as well as poultry production. I know that in, it was 2019, we had 75.5 million broiler chickens that were produced just in the state of West Virginia alone. So it's insane the amount of work that goes into just each individual state that you can pull out that information from. Right, and you uh, mentioned earlier in the interview, you're actually a first generation farmer. Um, I was actually wondering, you might be uniquely qualified to answer this question. Um, <laughs> Why should people who aren't as familiar with or aren't around the world of agriculture, so to speak, or farming, uh, just care about the field? Oh, this is a really good question. I love talking about this. Why should why should anybody else care about this? So there's less than 2% of our nation that's responsible for providing the food, the fuel, and the fiber that we utilize every day. Did you have breakfast this morning? I did. You did? What did you eat? I had... Let me think. I had some yogurt and Ooh. a banana. Oh, okay. So there's two right there. Do you have any coffee, orange juice? I did. I had, I had a cup of coffee. Yeah. Oh, sugar and cream in that? 
<laughs> just black coffee. Just black coffee. That's okay. That's okay. And I see that you're wearing clothes, obviously. That's pretty important. And then you had fuel in your vehicle to get you here, right? Yeah. Okay. So in one short morning, you've utilized five different agricultural commodities. Think about how many times you might utilize that in a day or how many times you might utilize agriculture in a month. Now think about how many times you would struggle if you didn't have that resource readily available to you. That's why it matters. We are so reliant on our agriculturists to make sure that we have things every single day, that we have the ability to eat, that we have this table that we're sitting at that's made of wood. You know, that is all agriculture. And people tend to really take that for granted. So that's why people should care. That's why it's important. That was Miss West Virginia, Elizabeth Lynch, speaking with Shepard Snyder. Caring for aging parents is hard, especially here in Appalachia. There's not always support for caregivers who provide the day-to-day needs of loved ones. Inside Appalachia, executive producer Eric Douglas is exploring issues around elder care. He recently spoke with Teresa Morris of the West Virginia chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Explain to me what we're talking about. Explain to me what Alzheimer's, dementia, they are separate, but they're effectively the same thing they are so so t- kind of give me the background a little bit what what, okay. what are we talking about so we we typically describe dementia as a collection of symptoms that affect a person's ability to function independently now those those symptoms or those traits can be memory loss issues with reasoning issues with sequencing language deficits. Um, dementia and Alzheimer's are, vi- are, are different in that um, Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. So we have about, I don't know, 12, 13 different types of dementia. Okay, that's um, So we have Alzheimer's disease. Um, there's a frontotemporal dementia. There's a vascular dementia, Lewy bodies dementia. I guess the location in the brain is going to affect the, the, the types of thing, the, the problems they'll have, whether it's spatial reasoning or whether it's memory loss or... Exactly. You know, mo- all, all dementias are going to have memory loss. They're going to have issues with recall. They're going to have issues with language. But um, they can be characterized a little bit different. There might be more behaviors with someone that has a frontotemporal dementia. Um, there might be personality changes. There might be more aggression maybe with, with another type of dementia. Okay. Let's discuss first the challenges of being a caregiver for somebody. So, you know, a caregiver of someone with dementia, I believe, you know, they deal with obviously the mental decline of, of the person that they're, that they're caring for um, and maybe seeing those changes. But I believe the person, the caregiver, often they experience grief. You know, they're, they're going to they're gonna mourn, I believe, at the beginning of what, what they expected their parents or, you know, loved one's life, end of life to be like. And it's, it's very, very different. But, you know, the fact of it is someone with dementia is going to require 24-hour care eventually. Um, all of the, the things that make someone independent are going to be lost. And so a caregiver will be charged with medication management, meals, you know, safety within the home, 
financial considerations. And with that often comes consideration for residential care or additional care in the home. And then that turns into financial considerations. You know, we, we, Medicare's not does not pay for caregiving per se, you know, so then you have to look at private pay for, for care in the home, or, or if you look at like an assisted living or personal care, you know, that's still private pay. Um, and then sometimes folks might need to qualify for Medicaid. And so then there's the challenge of going through that process and, you know, selling maybe the home or the, the, the land and, and, and just, all, all the possessions maybe to, to be able to provide the care that someone needs with, with, with dementia. What are the support groups for? What, do, what would I gain from, from being involved with one of those groups? So our support groups meet once a month. Um, we try to keep them to about an hour um, in length because people are busy. Um, a lot of these folks have a lot of the caregivers have jobs, you know, so they can't really be gone. Um, or if they're a 24-7 caregiver, they can't leave the person with disease for, for more than an hour. So anyhow, we try to keep it to an hour. Um, I think you gain camaraderie in a sense. Um, you know, the people in those groups are absolutely going through what you're going through. So how does somebody get involved with that? How does somebody, uh, where do they start? Where do you? So if you're interested in a support group, the best thing to do is to call our our office, our, our chapter office, that number is 304-343-2717. And you just tell us where you are. We'll try to plug you into a support group that is local to your community. And then we have a couple support groups across the state that meet virtually still. Okay. Um, so, you know, sometimes that's easier. You know, you can, you can call from home. You know, COVID did teach us that support groups are still effective, even if you're not in person. Uh, and I feel like we've kind of covered a lot, but what haven't we talked about? A healthy caregiver is a good caregiver. An exhausted and sick caregiver is, is not so much. So you have to really try to find time to manage your own stress and, and to try to take care of yourself. You have to go to your own doctor's appointments. You know, if you're down, you're never going to be able to take care of the person with the disease adequately. Um, you know, be realistic about what you can and can't do. I, I often see people um, will say, you know, well, I told my mom I'm, I'm never going to put them in a, you know, maybe a nursing home or a long-term care facility. And, and while that is a very um, valiant statement, you know, there, there might come a time where that's the best thing for you and for your loved one. That was Teresa Morris, Program Director for the West Virginia Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, speaking with Eric Douglas. For more, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Later in the show, we'll revisit a story about a special kind of cheese. Helvetia people are the only ones that has ever made that we know of. This type of cheese that it was brought over, the recipe was brought over with our ancestors. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. (laughs) 
Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply. Mark Harshman is West Virginia's Poet Laureate. Harshman's published more than 15 books over his career, many of them for children. His 2017 book, Believe What You Can, won Appalachian Book of the Year. Producer Bill Lynch recently spoke with Harshman about his long tenure, his current collection, Dark Hills of Home, and what it was like when he found out he was chosen to follow Irene McKinney as West Virginia Poet Laureate. Let's start off with, the, I guess, the big elephant in the room, 10 years as the Poet Laureate of West Virginia. Tell us about the story about how you became the Poet Laureate. Oh, that story. I love that story. I was children's author. I was downstate from Wheeling somewhere teaching a class. And I had, at that point, my daughter's old Razor cell phone. And uh, it went off. I was embarrassed. I tried not to ever have it on. So I clicked it off. Hop in the car an hour or so later, back on the road to go to some other school. And uh, I play the message, and it's from the governor's office. Office. I called the office and they asked me if I'd like to be the, the next Poet Laureate. And it was a huge surprise, frankly. I knew that Irene had passed away in February, and this was sometime later. I knew they'd be replacing her, but I never dreamed it would be me. The embarrassing thing is uh, the secretary who I talked to in the governor's office, I said, it was a Friday. I said, can I call you back after the weekend? <laughs> and I get home and I tell my wife this, and she says, you said what? But it's a happy story, and it's um, it's been a real privilege uh, and honor, and I have seen my my role in a variety of ways, but one of the primary things I've tried to do is to promote not just poetry and poets, but to promote all my fellow colleagues in the writing business, be it poetry, fiction, nonfiction, journalists. Um, and then we're such a small state. If I get the platform, I'm happy to trumpet the accomplishments of our painters and sculptors and musicians. And, and it always makes me feel good to, um, to bring new voices to light for an audience, be that audience, uh, a listening audience or a live audience. Do you remember your first, uh, your, your first outing, your first gig as the Poet Laureate? A, a couple stories there. I, I think the very first one may have been a small poetry reading in Moundsville, which was very appropriate because Moundsville or Marshall County was my home for many, many years before we moved to Wheeling. Now, a couple major things happened within that first year. One was organizing a tribute to Irene. There was a fine tribute paid at her home institution, West Virginia Wesleyan, and uh, closer to the time of her passing. And then uh, I wanted to organize something statewide, and we had a lovely tribute ceremony at uh, the Cultural Center, I think sometime that next year. On the other event, was in that next year was also the sesquicentennial year. And as I say, I don't write to order, but there I am uh, receiving a commission from the governor's office to write a poem to celebrate the state's sesquicentennial. And Bill, between you and I, that's just about the hardest thing I've ever done in my life uh, to try and um, to write such a poem. As a writer, I always try to speak honestly, and it was a little tricky writing a celebratory poem and at the same time trying to acknowledge at least a little of the darker scenes that run through the 
history of, of West Virginia. And uh, I'd simply have to ask readers and listeners to, to read the poem or hear it again to see whether I was successful in trying to, to do both things and, and at the end have a poem celebrating West Virginia, but also uh, celebrating it with a certain amount of honesty. I think it, it's it's the poem was titled A Song for West Virginia. I'm going to ask you about your, some of your favorite favorite readings, favorite, you know, favorite events you've been part of. The one that I think of was uh, was Mountain Stage, oh gosh, two years ago? You know, in Huntington, it was cold. My nose was running. I had a mask on. And it, uh, they had all these, I mean, this was, this was the first, this was the first Mountain Stage back with a big audience. And it was outdoors because we were all still kind of getting through restrictions, the pandemic, and they were trying to do the best they could. To, and you rocked. You were amazing. What are your, some of your favorites, though? <laughs> I have to say that was uh, that was quite an event. My uh, one and only time giving a poetry reading in an NCAA football stadium, uh, surrounded by rock and roll and soul bands. It's not. Uh, it's a place where a poet steps on the stage with uh, some serious trepidation. But uh, the stars were shining, and all went well that night. Oh, major events! God, it's it's hard to think of it in terms of events, but certainly delivering that poem for the sesquicentennial on the Capitol steps there in Charleston uh, early in the afternoon and then hightailing it back to read the same poem with the Wheeling Symphony that evening. It was a crazy West Virginia day that June of 2013, I think it was. Yeah, it was a privilege and honor to uh, give the keynote address for uh, last year. I think it was uh, last year's Appalachian Studies Association conference, which was held in Morgantown, where it had not been, if ever, uh, certainly had not been in many, many years. So that was so very satisfying to be able to do that. They're not events so much, but things I've done as laureate that please me very much is instituting the Wheeling Poetry Series, which began approximately, you know, I think we're into our eighth season now. And at least three times a year, we have one or two poets come to read here in Wheeling. Um, James Wright Festival was a major event just across the river in Martins Ferry, Ohio. And I wanted to see that continue. And I was so sad when it left us uh, many years ago and, and instituting the Wheeling Poetry Series gave me the opportunity to uh, bring poetry back to uh, to this part of the world. And then fortunately, after I became laureate, I was asked to step in to continue the author's roundtable at Charleston's festival celebrations in the summertime. That's been a real treat to do that. We have at least three authors every summer. At first, it was fiction, poetry, nonfiction. But then I realized we could make it a venue for more. So one year we had children's authors, another year um, W. VU Press had published a magnificent anthology of uh, LGBTQ writers from across Appalachia. So that was um, some of the writers from that anthology were featured that uh, time. During the pandemic, we even had a roundtable. Um, I don't think we think of this often, Bill, but there are many people throughout Appalachia who work as translators. And so I was able to have Jeremy Payton from Kentucky and Randy Ward from our own West Virginia at the roundtable to speak about the challenges and, and joy of translating uh, work from one language into another. Let's talk about Dark Hills at Home. Why? I don't know that we thought originally that this was going to coincide with my 10-year anniversary, but in fact, it did. And I saw this as a chance to uh, to choose some poems. Uh, some of the poems are really quite old, and some of them have never been published before and are relatively new. And the connecting thread is that they reflect in one way or another the landscape, life, culture of West Virginia or Appalachia writ large. 
Could you read us something from Dark Hills of Home? Uh, this is a poem called uh, Not All That Much. It's set squarely in West Virginia, I think, um, particularly of the southeastern mountains where the, the U-pines grow. There's a, I've got another poem called U-Piney Mountain, which is a, a, a tip of the hat to the old uh, fiddle tune, which has a variety of names. But this uh, poem will mention that. It's actually um, what local people call the red spruce. And the poem was uh, written for Doug Van Gundy. Not all that much. It wasn't all that much, you might say. Nothing to write home about, just a heavy green floor of ground cedar and springy peat littered with reindeer moss and lichened stones. Here and there, evidence of flying squirrels, muddy punctures in the cloth of the moss, and coyotes, their ropey black scat. And overhead, a canopy of birch, beech, and red spruce, the latter, the locals, eupine, whose pointed black lances bristle along the ridgeline. Not that much, perhaps, and our only companion a still and remembered peculiar silence, a silence with weight and the kind of karma you can't get from books or gurus or poets. I lean against the gray birch or sit on the white sandstone or kneel in the faded leaf litter and pray without thanking God or prayer, pray by simply staying put, letting time fall away from me, letting thought fall away from me until it's just me and this, these things that don't seem all that much, but are. Thank you. Well, Eric Douglas and I talk about poems sometimes. He tells me he's a he's struggling to get into poetry. I was explaining it you have to speak it, you have to hear it spoken, at least for me. Well, no, I think uh, poetry is, is a, as close to music as we can get on the page. And a good poem, should we should be able to hear it on the ear. It doesn't mean it has to have rhyme and meter necessarily, but it does have to have a certain pulse, a certain uh, liveliness of voice, if you will, um, a certain passion that comes through in the reading. And that's uh, not easy. And I know that certainly in draft materials that if I would just say the poem aloud, I will quickly know whether it's working or not working. I can hear it on the ear. <laughs> there's there's an anecdote about the, the uh, composer Charles Ives, but I can't remember whether it was his music being performed or someone else's, but he is rumored to, and you know, the crowd was not happy with what they were hearing. And he, and he stood up and said, use your ears like a man. Now, that's a generation ago. He didn't speak with uh, the sensitivity that I would hope we'd employ today. But uh, there is something about hearing that's essential to poetry. Uh, the book is Dark Hills of Home, Mark. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you, Bill. Dark Hills of Home is published by Monongahela Books. Recovery from severe flooding takes time. Numerous places here in Appalachia have been especially hard hit the last couple of years, and people are still in need of emergency funds as places are rebuilding. One of those places is Hurley, Virginia, close to both the West Virginia and Kentucky borders. In August of 2021, it was struck by flash flooding. About six or seven inches of rain fell in just a matter of a few hours. Megan Schnabel is a reporter with Cardinal News, a nonprofit digital news site. She recently spoke with Radio IQ's Jeff Bossert about what she saw while reporting on the 2021 flood. 
Dozens of homes were destroyed. Scores more were damaged seriously. Most homeowners did not have flood insurance. FEMA denied assistance to individual homeowners, um, saying that the damage wasn't severe enough. So a lot of people were left with really no options to, to fix their homes. Fortunately, a, a big fundraising campaign was kicked off by United Way of Southwest Virginia. Hundreds of volunteers came in, you know, spent months and months helping people fix up their homes. Then last summer, another flood destroyed more homes in Buchanan County, this time in the Whitewood community. Again, FEMA aid was denied to homeowners. Last session, state lawmakers set aside $11.4 million to assist victims of the 2021 flood in Hurley. So far, only a small portion of the money has been awarded. Because so much time has passed since the initial disaster, a lot of people went ahead and spent their own money to get work done. And if they didn't keep all of the documentation, they're not going to get reimbursed. And so that has been one roadblock. Another is that to get this money, you have to have a contractor come in and give you an estimate for what it would cost if you haven't had the work done. And there is such a shortage of contractors, especially in that area, that homeowners have been having a hard time just even getting those estimates done. So because of those two issues, there's still a big pot of money out there that has not been dispersed. And with lawmakers getting back, do you say there's a chance that is there, is there additional funding through the state? Uh, Yes. Governor Yunkin last month um, in his budget amendments called for another $11 million in emergency funds to be set aside for Buchanan County. And that would um, go to help the the second round of flood victims, the folks in Whitewood who don't yet have any money available. Have you had a lot of conversations with with victims? I mean, just on their, you talked to some of them on their frustrations? Yeah, the last time I was down in Buchanan County, it was um, a couple of months ago. I actually checked in with some of the Hurley flood victims. Who, you know, it was, it was a year later, and and um, you know, a lot of them are, are back to back to normal. You know, the fortunate ones who had volunteer crews come to their homes right away and did a lot of rebuilding quickly, and you know, they're they're back in their homes and they're trying to carry on as well as they can. But you can tell that that the memories still linger. You know, I talk to several people who, who say anytime it rains hard, they still have flashbacks. You know, there was a family with, you know, multiple children, and they spent hours and hours out huddled on a hillside outside their home, just, you know, watching the water come up and wondering if they were going to be rescued. You know, eventually a swift water rescue crew came at about 11 o'clock at night and, and took them away on a boat. But that's not the kind of thing that you forget quickly. And, and I know that a lot of them, when a year later they saw the same thing happening to their neighbors across the county, it was really difficult for them. And it, But it was so heartening to see that you know, these people who lost everything in Hurley were stepping up a year later to help their neighbors across the county because they knew what it was like. They were some of the first in line to, you know, to bring clothing and to bring food and, and other donations. It was you really got the sense that they knew that if they weren't going to get outside help, they really needed to band together and help each other. That was Megan Schnabel from Cardinal News, speaking with Radio IQ's Jeff Bossert. Home heating is one of the largest sources of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. To reduce emissions, the Biden administration is promoting more efficient electric heat pumps. But changing the way Americans heat their homes won't be easy. Reed Frazier of State Impact Pennsylvania reports. Jason Nadzim is standing in a workshop at the Community College of Allegheny County in the western suburbs of Pittsburgh. 
He's teaching a class on HVAC, that's heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. Today, he's giving a demonstration to the students. He flips on a heat pump, basically a machine that looks like an air conditioner. So you can hear how, instead of this thing just firing on with a start cap and a contactor, potential relays, like a conventional motor would, this thing ramps up. So it's an inverter that is ramping up the frequency. Heat pumps have been around for years, but many now see them as crucial in the fight to slow global warming. To NADSM, they're also a way to lower home heating bills. You look at the price of what home heating oil is right now, um, you're looking at $5 a gallon to fill a thousand gallon tank to get you through winter. That's a, that's a big pill to swallow. So um, that's where a heat pump would be beneficial. When it comes to carbon dioxide pollution, the main cause of climate change, heat pumps have two advantages over fossil fuels like natural gas, propane, and heating oil. One is they use electricity, so it's possible to run them on zero carbon sources like wind, solar, and nuclear. The other is they're very efficient. Amy Boyd is with the Acadia Center in Boston, which helps northeastern states meet climate targets. She says heat pumps work so well because they're not generating heat like a furnace or stove. Instead, they rely on a clever piece of technology called a heat exchanger. The way that heat pumps work is they move heat. And so even if it seems cold to your eye, if it's any warmer than the vacuum of space, then there is heat out there to be moved. Because it's only moving heat around, not creating it, heat pumps are up to four times more efficient than a standard furnace. In the summer, they can reverse themselves, doubling as air conditioners. Right now, about 10% of homes in the U.S. use heat pumps. That number will have to go up if the country is going to meet its climate goals. Eliminating the greenhouse gas emissions that are coming from our heat, particularly in the Northeast, is one of the biggest things that an individual consumer can do to fight climate change. Buildings are second only to transportation as sources for greenhouse gases. In Pittsburgh, around a quarter of the city's greenhouse gas emissions come from heating buildings with natural gas. But there are downsides to heat pumps. They get less efficient the colder it gets. That's why they're more common in southern, warmer states. And they may cost more to run than gas furnaces. That's because electricity is usually more expensive than natural gas, which heats about two-thirds of homes in Pennsylvania. Nadzim found this out when he installed a heat pump in his own house 20 years ago, taking advantage of a special rate from a local electric utility. A few years ago, the utility ended the special rate. All of a sudden, my electric bill skyrocketed because when we go below 30 or 25, that electric resistance heat's coming on, and now the meter's flying. It's smoking. He replaced his old heat pump with a new one that works better in colder temperatures. As a result, his electric bill has gone down. It's a 1982 Cutlass Supreme versus a Prius. There's no comparison. But many contractors, especially in cold cities like Pittsburgh, are reluctant to recommend heat pumps to customers. In a basement in Pittsburgh's Belts Hoover neighborhood, Gino Ottoviani cuts out a pane of sheet metal from a new gas furnace he's hooking up today. The customer's heat has been out for several days. So this is a 70,000 BTU natural gas furnace, cutting the return air in on the side. 
The woman that lives here called a few days ago. Her furnace, over 40 years old, had stopped working. Otto Viani recommended the cheapest and simplest repair, a furnace replacement for around $6,000. He did not steer the customer to a heat pump, in part because the house didn't already have central air conditioning. Then we could have that conversation of, hey, if you're going to replace this, instead of just AC only, would you like a heat pump? But it's, it, it's we just needed to get her up and running. Adding an electric heat pump on top of the gas furnace would be one solution. That way the gas furnace could run only on the coldest days. But that would have cost six to $8,000 extra. Financing 6000 versus financing 12000 is kind of a, it's a big difference for people. And a lot of people, believe it or not, don't care about the furnace at all until it doesn't work. The Biden administration is trying to make heat pumps more affordable through a series of tax breaks. The Inflation Reduction Act, passed last year, includes extra incentives for low-income households to get heat pumps and other energy efficiency upgrades. But contractors are not always happy to install heat pumps. When he tried to find one that did, Brendan Slaughterback encountered resistance. The first one he talked to listed several reasons not to do it. Like, well, that's gonna, it's not really gonna work and it's gonna be more expensive. Um, and so I just, I want, I knew that that was not true, just given, you know, folks that I talked to um, who work on this every day. Slaughterback and his wife, Carissa, both work in the sustainability field. They eventually found a contractor that would install a heat pump. Their gas furnace remains in place to run when the weather gets really cold, like it did this Christmas. In his yard, the heat pump sits innocuously next to his house, where the air conditioner once stood. Basically, you know, the unit they took out of there looked almost exactly the same. This one's maybe like six inches taller. Slaughterback says his heating costs overall are about the same as before, but he's using much less natural gas. He buys electricity from a clean energy supplier, so he's heating his home on an extreme carbon diet. Reed Frazier, State Impact, Pennsylvania. Winter is a great time for birding. If you're just starting out, this is especially a good time. Bare trees allow you to better see birds, and it's a good way to learn species before the spring migration. Now, a new book is aimed specifically at beginning birders. Here's Kara Holsoppel with the Allegheny Front Environment Update. The title is, This is a Book for People Who Love Birds. But author Danielle Bellany, a wildlife biologist, says she wants to give everybody a way into the world of birds. They shouldn't be excluded or be discouraged from enjoying these birds, especially if they don't have the facts about them. And the book is filled with not only descriptions and stories about North American birds, but also with birding culture and tips. I asked Bellany why she wanted to write the guide. Honestly, it was just like, I mean, I have really nothing else to do. It was um, I started the book during the pandemic. But also a lot of bird guides might have used like jargon or like language that I guess was more geared towards like birders themselves instead of a larger audience. So I really wanted to get folks away from being concerned about not understanding something and, you know, being able to be in it because they're interested. You also write about good places to see and watch birds, maybe places you wouldn't think of like parking lots and cemeteries. I know you're famous for that. You've written about that. Where do you recommend people watch and enjoy birds? Yeah, you can always start just at your own place, um, wherever you are. That's the great thing about birds. They're literally everywhere. Um, so even if you enjoy them online, that definitely is a place to start. Parking lots is a great place to go. I've met a lot of people who, and also just birders in general, 
you find the bird that you're always looking for right when you're about to leave in the parking lot. So why not you just stay there and just start there in the first place? Um, and yeah, cemeteries is another one. Um, you know, they're basically a park, just so you know, got a little extra features. Um, and there's oftentimes not very many people there. So you have a nice time to enjoy the whole place to yourself. You just think outside the box, really anywhere, like a drainage ditch, you can just pull over to the side of the road, um, always be safe. But yeah, there's birds everywhere. Just take a moment and slow down and just look. I love the descriptions of the birds you write of ospreys. Meat-eating birds are too cool for words. Do you have a favorite bird in the book? Oh, yeah, man. Painted bunting is definitely my favorite bird. Um, it's very common in Texas, and a lot of folks in Texas don't even realize we have this, like, Crayola crayon, brightly colored bird in our backyards. And it's a great spark bird for a lot of folks. I know my parents, especially, when they realized that they had them in their backyard, they basically started becoming birders. So, yeah, it's just a bird that brings a lot of joy to, my, to me. What's a spark bird? Oh, so yeah, a spark bird is basically a bird that kind of pulls you into birding, or at least brings your attention to birds. Um, yeah, it just it, it ignites the spark of wanting to go learn more about birds. What do birds and birding mean to you that you wanted to share with people? Yeah, I guess it's really awesome that birding itself is a hobby that you can turn on and off whenever you want to. I think that was definitely the allure for me, um, that you can also just never be bored in nature. There's always something interesting to look at. Um, and birds, they're always been a symbol of freedom. I think across a lot of cultures, especially, um, being able to have wings to fly away to go somewhere else is, is a luxury. And um, I think a lot of us look, look to birds for that inspiration. Danielle Bellany is a wildlife biologist and author of This is a Book for People Who Love Birds. She's a co-organizer of Hashtag Black Birders Week on Twitter. There's more at AlleghenyFront.org. I'm Carol Holsapple. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on regional environmental news. Residents of Helvetia, West Virginia, can trace their heritage back to Switzerland. And the town preserves its Swiss culture and traditions through famous festivals like Fashnat, the Saturday before Fat Tuesday in February. In Helvetia, you can sample Swiss dishes at the Hutte restaurant and browse local goods at Swiss Roots, the community store. One of these goods is a homemade cheese called Appalachian Alpine. Its makers are a retired couple whose new hobby revived a lost recipe. Folkways reporter Lauren Griffin reports. I'm in the basement kitchen of Theron Morgan's house in Helvetia, West Virginia. Lining the shelves are rows and rows of home canned goods, and we're halfway through the process of making a block of cheese. It kind of gets milky at first, kind of a lumpy, like a soured milk. She's describing a pot full of cheese curds, which she's elbows deep in, carefully cutting the warm curds up by hand. It just feels like, um, oh goodness, like jello. Theron is a third generation descendant of Swiss immigrants. Her grandfather moved to Helvetia in the 1870s when the community was just forming. Um, my uh, family was from the Bern, the Canton Bern, from the Sonnen area, and that was the Bettlers. When Theron's husband Russell retired recently, the couple wanted to pick up a new hobby. They settled on making cheese, but not just any cheese. Theron and Russell wanted to make the kind of cheese Theron's grandfather and other early Helvetia residents made. But that would mean reviving a family tradition that had been dormant for decades, a tradition that takes knowledge, skill, 
and the right environmental conditions. Theron didn't have her grandfather's recipe after he passed, but she knew her neighbor Nancy could help. She just said, Nancy, will you, will you show me how to make cheese? And I said, yes. That's Nancy Gain, and we're miles away from each other connecting via Zoom. Her ancestors are from the same region in Switzerland as Theron's, and she remembers her mother making cheese as a child, the same kind of cheese Theron's grandfather made. And it was the same recipe that everyone made here. And uh, I believe it was what was made high up in the Alps. With Nancy's guidance, Theron was able to recreate the recipe and knowledge of cheesemaking that had been lost in her family. We just went down and I told her, you know, what I knew and what just from from experience of how I did it. But Theron needed more than just a recipe. To make this particular type of cheese, she needed a key ingredient, fresh cow milk. Theron didn't have her own dairy cow and neither did Nancy. Well, it, it's it's hard because no one no one wants to milk. You know, if if they raise cattle, it's usually uh, beef cattle and not they don't want to have a, a family cow. It used to be everybody had to have a family cow to have milk. It's not that way anymore. Theron has a friend nearby that still has a milk cow, so she's able to get the necessary ingredient. We're really blessed to be able to live in a place where it's not just that you have neighbors, but you have family. When, you know, your neighbor needs something, they come and you give it to them. It's just no big deal. You know, it's not like you don't have to pay this back. You know, I took some cheese up to my neighbor one day and he come back and the next thing I know, he's knocking on a door with the package of sausage, you know, because he had made sausage that day. It's just a real um, family-oriented type of situation. With help from her neighbors, Theron was on her way to making her first batches of cheese. Theron's husband, Russell, even built them their very own cheese cave, a cold and humid storage room right in their basement. Now they had the perfect controlled climate for aging cheese. All the old farmers was making cheese in their kitchen and then they were curing it or aging it in their cellar. And in those cellars, you have dirt floor, um, rocks that are, you know, are moldy and, you know, a perfect situation for aging cheese. With the right recipe, the essential ingredients, and the ideal environment, Theron and Russell's hobby took off. The nostalgic taste of the cheese reminded community members like Nancy of the cheese their parents and grandparents used to make. Also, it's good. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we all like it, and it's a special treat. So we, you know, you try to have it, and, and uh, it's like, oh, I've got, some, I've got some homemade cheese, you know. Cheese making is a laborious process, and many community members don't take the time and effort to make it these days. Demand for the cheese began to soar, and Theron and Russell started to sell their cheese, which they call Appalachian Alpine, down at Swiss Roots, the local Helvetia market. And it was a surprise when we took the first load down to them the first week, and within 24 hours, they were out. West Virginia has expansive cottage food laws that allow individuals to sell products, including milk-based products like cheese, that are made in their own homes. And it is a delicacy. It's, you know, we're the only ones, you know, Helvetia people are the only ones that has ever made that we know of this type of cheese that it was brought over. The recipe was brought over with our ancestors from Switzerland. And 
So it was a, a tradition that was being shut down. So the legislature uh, was nice enough, some of the uh, members was nice enough to create a bill to waiver all of that. So now that we can uh, make the cheese in our own kitchen and and cure it in the cellars. Although the cheese is now available in the community, there's a real concern Theron has about Swiss traditions like cheese making being lost as the younger generations move away. So she's made sure to share this recipe and process with her granddaughter, Georgia. Well, she's always been very much into like canning foods and um, doing all kinds of different things. And uh, like we've made things like dandelion jelly and like just a bunch of cool different things. So it wasn't too strange when she started making cheese. Georgia doesn't live in Helvetia, but she visits every so often and has enjoyed learning the process of cheese making alongside her grandmother. I I think it's really fun um, after you boil it and then like you have to cut it and um, the part where you stick your arm in or like your hand into like get the cheese curds all separated. That's my favorite part because it's so soft and like smooth and then your hands feel so soft afterwards. I have um, a couple of friends though that have come up and they like refuse to put their hand in it because they thought it was gross, but I love it. Seeing the enthusiasm of Georgia gives Theron hope that the community of Helvetia will grow again and preserve not just the tradition of cheesemaking, but other Swiss traditions as well. And there are several of us my age still here in the community, but I think that's why we want to make sure that our kids and our grandkids know how to do these things like making cheese and canning and things like that. So we know that that type of thing and those traditions are carried on even the the swiss traditions like the folk dancing and the you know all that type of thing um so we know that that will be carried on to the next generation making a block of cheese isn't just a day's work it takes weeks or months to age the cheese to perfection if you have the patience and dedication however the result is delicious i like it on um with homemade bread and tomato sandwich or just Slice it with a glass of wine. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Lauren Griffin. That story is part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. To listen to more stories like this, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Helvetia's Foschnot Festival takes place February 18th, but come prepared. There's no cell service in town, so GPS is mostly unreliable. There aren't any ATMs, and the nearest gas station is five miles away in Pickens. But there is a payphone near the Helvetia Star Band Hall, so maybe take a few quarters with you, just in case. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by the company stores Mary Hot, Paul Loomis, and Montana Skies. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. 
Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu.